0: Uh, My my grandmother, a a devoted believer whom I loved a lot, she's not with us anymore, so I feel like I can tell this story, Uh, whom I loved a lot, was a very, really intense lady. Uh, because of some and one application, this is not the only thing, and not even primarily what I have in mind. But uh, because of some personal experiences from her childhood, she was a, a very outspokenly teetotaler. Right, and yeah, underline outspokenly. Uh, and I remember once we were at an Italian restaurant uh, where she asked the waiter if a particular dish had wine in the sauce. It did. And so she stated loudly and matter-of-factly that she will not be having it. No. There's all sorts of factors involved in that situation, aren't there? You know, it's fine if people don't want to drink alcohol. And you could respond, though, regardless of your stance on that particular issue, that, well, when you cook something, everything that would have an effect on you is cooked out when it's in food. (laughs) Or you could just recognize that this is clearly an important issue to her. And to support her, and something that clearly weighed on her conscience, even if perhaps she didn't always express it in the most diplomatic way. In First Corinthians ten, the end of this chapter here, really the whole chapter and preceding chapters too, Paul highlighted a situation that's a lot like that. And outline some principles for responding to it. In this instance, Christians living in a pagan city where idolatry ran rampant struggled when, with whether or not they could, in good conscience, eat meat that came from the idol temples. After all, that meat had been tied Two false gods at least at one point point. and throughout chapters 8 to 10 Paul roundly denounced Christian participation in the pagan ceremonies themselves believers cannot be involved at the temples and cannot eat the meat as it is served in the temples in connection to the idols but what about when the meat is sold in the market can believers eat it when it is no longer connected to that religious purpose? Well, in good pastoral fashion, Paul if Paul's answer was not fully black or white. It accounted for people's genuine situations and the complexities of living the Christian life well in a difficult world. Those who favored eating this meat, regardless of circumstance, were correct that the idols were not real gods, but they had overlooked that pagan worship was truly demonic religion. So Christians could not share in the Lord's table and at the table of humans. Meat without a religious significance is a different matter, though. The the bigger question, even then, whether, if if Christians may eat, however, is what effect does my eating this have on another believer? And the issue is, therefore, bigger than whether Christians may or may, may not do this or that. The core of the matter is to seek the good of our neighbors. So the main point is that Christians Christians must respond to ethical issues theologically and in service to their neighbor, your neighbor. Christians must respond to ethical issues theologically and in service to your neighbor. We'll think about that in three points. Idolatry, indifference, and imitation. So First, let's think about idolatry. And really, the first thing we need to do, right, as you can tell, even in our verses from verse 23 on, there's a lot of moving parts with a lot of details here. And so I think it's going to be helpful for us if we can grab hold of an outline, then that will get us into this text properly. So in verses 23 to 24, Paul laid out the main issue. The Corinthians had a correct slogan that all things are lawful. That's why it's in quotes. They had written it to him. In that, God's people are not defined by cultural practices. We saw some of that this morning. But that does not mean... Christians should do everything they lawfully may do. Some things don't help themselves or the church. So the the Christian response to the lawful but not useful premise should be to work in service of your neighbor rather than your own desires. So we've got this premise... Right? All things are lawful, but not everything is useful. Our response to that situation is that we should act in service to our neighbor rather than ourselves. In verses twenty five to thirty one, Paul applied that principled Christian stance of prioritizing service to others within what is lawful to the case of this meat sacrifice to idols issue. And this is the most winding section. So we're actually just going to set it aside and, and come back to it. For now, we just want to see that this discussion of food applies the principle, right? Paul is applying the principle of put others before yourself. And then finally, verse 32 to 11:1, Paul summed up the properly Christian approach to issues like this. Verse 32 is is maybe better translated. Be blameless to Jews and to Greeks and to God's church. Be blameless to all of these people. Paul practiced that by, by putting others' needs before his desires, just as Christ did in coming to die for his people. The aim... The aim is their salvation by removing every stumbling block that our personal preferences might create. So so the outline is that Paul exhorted, prioritizing our neighbors, applied that principle to the issue at hand, and then summed up this Christian disposition to be blameless to all by not infringing on consciences. But what about this issue of... Eating meat offered to idols. That's the topic at hand for Paul. And and we shouldn't skate over it just to get to something that seems more relevant to us, right? Under the umbrella of verse 24, that our principle is to seek the good of our neighbor, not just our own. Paul said you can eat whatever you want without worrying about it violating your conscience. You can do that, but be careful, be careful that your use of liberty does not violate someone else's conscience if they have scruple about an issue. Nobody needs to put effort into finding out if meat was used in the temple. Right? In verses 25 and 26, if you, if you buy it in the market, thank God for it. Because as Psalm 24-1 tells us it all belongs to Him. In verse 27, if you eat at someone's house, don't worry about where they bought their food. Because idle meat is not inherently unclean apart from, apart from its religious significance. But, in verse 28-29, if someone announces at dinner, that the meat was offered to idols, then don't eat it. Now, commentators debate right there whether the speaker would be another Christian guest that just sort of said, I think this meat was sacrificed to an idol, or the unbelieving host who says this was sacrificed in the temple. But Paul, I mean, despite commentators debating things that they often do, <laughs> Paul was probably non-specific on purpose. It doesn't in his view it doesn't matter who announces it. If the Christian says it he probably has scruples and is worried. So pay attention to that. If the unbeliever announces it he's probably proud of the fact that this meat was linked to idols. So pay attention to that. Both cases prompt you to act for the person's conscience. Don't infringe upon another Christian's scruples and disrupt their faith. But also don't suggest to an unbeliever that you condone their idolatry. When, in this case, he ties the meat back to its earlier idolatrous use. Idolatry is the true concern for Christians that we do not participate or condone false worship. That brings us to our second point, indifference. Indifference. Paul navigated this pastoral situation about what food Christians may eat by, in a sense, splitting the difference and saying that the proper response depends on the situation. Is there... Anyway, then, as we look at this, that, that this passage transposes onto life today. After all, as far as I know, London has no pagan temples in the official formal sense where they are sacrificing animals to a different deity. Um, what do we do with it? Christians traditionally, since the first centuries, and especially the Reformed, have made a distinction between essential and indifferent matters. Now let's let's illustrate that. I, I think we can think about our worship services, and this won't be controversial, don't worry. Uh It's essential that we have the Word read and preached. Prayers and praises. We have to have those things. It's spiritually, spiritually indifferent whether we do that at 9 a.m., 11 a.m., 5.30, 6.30. There may be practical importance. 4 a.m. is not a useful time. It's lawful, but it's not a useful time for us to begin worship. But spiritually, that's also indifferent. There's nothing wrong with that. The Word of God does not mandate that issue specifically. Neither does the moral law have implications for it. But let's, let's, so we see how there's an essential and an indifferent Set of things. Now let's think about flexibility in, in different matters. So for example, when in the pulpit, I think most people agree, although there's different definitions of the word respectable, pastors should dress in a respectable manner that gives due reverence to the situation but there isn't an exact biblical mandate about how that actually looks. Right, a particular point of pastoral attire that's long been discussed that that I think is a useful thought experiment is the the clergy collar. Okay, so so when I've been to another country, when I when I went and preached in Romania, the pastor there said. Uh, He's going to insist on that I need to wear this collar because in his framework, in his context, the ministers who don't wear collars tend to be prosperity gospel preachers. So he strives not to identify with them. So there it signals traditional Orthodox Christianity, so I happily wore it. In the UK... Throughout, in to varying degrees in different places, not only Presbyterians, but also Anglicans wear collars. Uh, so in parts of Scotland, right, I think it's expected. And, you know, a pastor would likely wear one and, and not oppose doing it, certainly, and, and probably wouldn't oppose doing it here, although it certainly doesn't seem necessary here and probably sends a certain message but then on the other hand, if I were ever to return to the American Southeast, the, the only category the public really has for clergy collars is Roman Catholicism. So in that context, I would be opposed to wearing it in that ministry context. That, so that gives us a feel, right? It's, a, it's an example For how some matters are indifferent, but there's flexibility in how we execute wisdom about matters in certain contexts. Now, in our passage, what Paul is talking about is wisdom in honest matters. Areas where Christians legitimately disagree about something, but conscience may be involved still. Now, the problem with that, the problem is that debate will rage about what is truly non-essential or indifferent. (sighs) Some in Corinth clearly thought the whole matter was indifferent. The whole thing. They were fine even eating meat in the temples. They wanted to push... Christian freedom to the extreme, if we can eat meat that came from the temples, why can't I just eat it in the temple? And there Paul responded, because that is pagan worship, and you don't belong there. The essential matter is our worship. The the non-essential matter then is is the food you're eating. So we, we cannot, and I think this principle does transpose, we and what we see at work here, we cannot confuse essential premises with non-essential circumstances. The meat was indifferent. Pagan worship wasn't. On, on the other hand, though, so you've got people saying the whole matter is indifferent. On the other hand, some had blurred essentials and non-essentials by making absolutely everything religiously essential. If a pagan used this meat ever, then we cannot eat it, even outside the context of worship. In their mind, everything was a matter of essentials, and everything in life was either fundamentally, fundamentally Christian or religiously pagan. And interestingly, Paul says... Actually, the whole world belongs to God. It's His. And so so give thanks for what you are given, regardless of where it comes from, and enjoy. So you cannot participate in pagan worship or endorse it, nor infringe on another Christian's conscience Right, but you, LCPZ, when when you go to the shop, you need not worry whether the baker at Tesco is a Christian. God created flour and gave you means to buy bread. So give thanks. Indifference accounts for God's blessings and Christian freedom while recognizing the need for wisdom. That brings us to our final point, imitation. Try to, again, we have to keep that in mind, that the, the real problem in this whole matter, as we think about parsing this out today, because this isn't limited to this food question, is that we don't all agree about what is essential and what is indifferent. Oh. <laughs> We can make a list of things that trouble churches even today, right? What we sing, whether Christians can drink alcohol, what we must wear to church, which Bible translation is is best, and the church's stance about some issues active in political discussions. Now, none of that is to render verdict on any of those questions, but merely to highlight some areas of disagreement that we all know are in the church. And can sharply divide Christians. What do we do with these things? And Paul gives us the answer twice, which lets you know it's important. Verse 24. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. And starting in verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense. Right? There it is. Be blameless to Jews and Greeks and God's church, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do by not seeking my own advantage, but that of the many. So that with the purpose that they might be saved imitate me as I imitate Christ there's an unspoken premise that leads up to this application here when right and this is we have to take account of all the factors when when brothers and sisters are striving to be faithful to scripture that's an important qualifier even when they disagree with us, right, we should be supremely charitable by seeking their good in these matters of disagreement. That, that protects us from complete relativity. That's not what it, the Bible teaches. That's I hope we all know that that's not what I'm saying. Right? It's just that some matters require wisdom. And that doesn't mean that God's moral law is relative or changes. Now, on the other hand, right, we've got an importantly qualified situation, but on the other hand, if someone states they don't care what God's Word said about, says about an issue, well, that's not a case where we're called to exercise that much flexibility. Well, this is what the Word of God says, and actually that's our standard. We need to be kind... Sometimes we confuse that sticking to our position can be done in a kind way, but then that's a that's not really the thing that happens very often in churches like ours. But but if a Christian is wrestling with God's word, truly wanting to be faithful to the Lord, but does not now quite see it my way. Well, I need to be generous and patient, even listening to hear if perhaps they have understood God's word better than I have. Right? And that gives us a model on both ends of that, doesn't it? Actually, we need to be people who, I mean, we are, but we need to make sure we remember Striving to be faithful to God's Word is the important premise of sorting out disagreement, not getting my way. And then on the other hand, when we recognize someone has that disposition, well, don't trample on them heavily. Treat them as a brother or sister. and Work through the thing gently. In practice, right, I... As that works out, I need to think more of their good than insisting on my way. Christians need to be supremely charitable to help each other progress in the Christian life. We cannot insist on our preferences as we all strive to be faithful to God together. So if you think that another Christian is not minding the essentials, well, rather than lash out at them, rather than judging them, or rather than leaving the church, well will have a conversation. Ask why someone does what they do. Go into that hoping that everybody will learn better what it means to submit to God's Word in a particular issue. And learn how to have a discussion, and and that we will come away learning better how to have a discussion as Christians. Iron sharpens iron. On the other hand, if using your freedom, which you may plainly see in Scripture, you have a particular freedom to do. Well, it may not be best to put that on display for your neighbor. Especially in some contexts where that can be damaging. Don't do things, put a dent in someone else's conscience. Don't insist upon your freedom if, if using it will not help your neighbor in their faith. And in that way, give no offense to anyone. Verse 32, right again, be blameless. Be blameless to Jews, to Greeks, and to God's church. Be blameless precisely by, he tells you how to do that. You don't have to wonder by not seeking your own advantage, but listening to and responding to your neighbor's needs. You want to know how to be blameless with all those groups of people, which, by the way, is everybody? He tells you. Don't seek your own advantage, but listen and think about your neighbor's needs. And the reason, the reason for that approach is of supreme importance. Because it was Christ's. That's how he did things. Paul said imitate him as he imitated Jesus. We are called to that imitation. 11, verse 1. Jesus, God's eternal Son, the High King of Heaven and full of glory, did not insist on His equality with God, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant. He did not obey the Father because He had to as God the Son, but because it would benefit you, Christian, Because it would help you. He loved you and gave himself for you. He died to set you free from the law's curse. He rose from the grave to pave your way into everlasting life. And he gives you the spirit. Now for your assurance, for your assurance, for your good, for your comfort, and to help you live for your neighbor's good. Let's pray. Father God, we are challenged and assured in this passage. We're challenged in that we, we know it is easy to fall into patterns of thinking. It's easy to become unthoughtful. It's it's easy to to go about knowing, knowing that we have it sorted and that we have the right answer. And yet there are so many situations in the church where we have to think about the good of the people around us. And we pray that you would help us in that. We we know as as we look at even the days before us that this is likely to become an issue of some sort. We are thankful that you have long protected this church from serious disagreement. And we ask that you would continue to work that amongst us. Help us to be unified. Help us to be loving and joyfully together. Protect us from debate and disagreement. And when there are differences in the way that we see things, help us to have this approach seeking one another's good, listening to each other, because because we are so thankful that Christ did that with us. That he did not insist on his own equality with you, but he gave it up for us. Help us to have that servant's disposition because we receive it from Christ. And we pray all of these things in his name. Amen.